Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. This podcast was sponsored by Trillium. As such, the sponsor makes suggestions for discussion, but the final control over the content remains with the Investment Innovation Institute. Welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with Matt Fetsky, who is the CEO and Portfolio Manager at Trillium, a firm focusing on sustainable investing. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate uh, being on. No worries. We spoke in the past a little bit about how you got started in the uh, sustainable investment industry and some of the questions that you asked early on in your career. Having some time to reflect on that, I thought it was sort of interesting to take a high level approach. Most people in this industry are focused on the numbers, on forecasts, on you know profit numbers, EPS. But there's not always a proper way of taking into account the, the human element and, and say, for instance, the culture, the people at the top um, into a solid analysis framework. To what degree was that a consideration when you started asking these questions about staff and about some of the arrangement within the firm? Was that consciously on your mind or was that just natural questions? Yeah, I I would say I uh, took it as a positive that it was not easy to get this information um, and therefore would be a competitive advantage. So I I don't, rem- I, I, you know, I don't call and doing it starting in the 80s thinking, boy, this is difficult to get at. I remember thinking, boy, it's amazing. More people aren't going after this type of information. I, I, I think I recognized this was something that, uh, unlike financial information, wasn't easily quantifiable and wasn't readily available. So to a degree, it was sort of an under-researched area. Yeah, exactly. An under-researched area. And what I was seeing emerging were a number of consumer brands that had a particular focus on providing a positive social environmental impact in addition to, you know, their operation of their business that was also resonating with consumers. So, you know, Ben and Jerry's, Starbucks, Whole Foods Market, and and you were watching this emergence and saying there's something to this because these consumers are also willing to pay a premium for the products or services of these companies for whom they have an alignment 
with their values to the culture of the firm. When we last spoke, you, you mentioned that not everybody was quite excited about the questions that you wanted to ask of companies. Can you tell me a little bit uh, more about that and take me back to sort of the, the early days when you started out um, going to companies? Sure. Um, well, it was, it was at the start, I will tell you, when you go to, you know, basically ask for who you want to speak at the company. I always had as one of the first stops, the director of human resources. And uh, I, you know, I would repeatedly get back from the investor relations of the CFO. Why do you want to meet the head of HR? Nobody ever <laughs> asks to see the head of HR. And again, that struck me as well, then they're really missing incredible information because if I want to understand how they're recruiting, retaining, uh, rewarding talent, I need to talk to the HR people. And uh, probably also doesn't hurt that I have a, uh, I'm from a, a family, a, a working class family of four kids and my older sister is a director of human resources. Huh. So I maybe had a little bit of a, of a, of a sense of that's an important role and we should talk to that person. But um, so I, I think it was uh, from the get-go really helpful for uh, gaining insight into the companies that I was looking at in terms of, of, of uh, operational expertise in terms of talent recruitment and retention. And, you know, and, and it helped me pick better companies. So I, I was, uh, you know, uh, didn't take the, any discouragement from uh, heads of, 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 you know, from the directors of investor relations or uh, chief financial officers as being a reason not to push to, to, to ask to speak to the HR department. Yeah, no, interesting. So there's sort of a, a family interest there because I always wondered how something like that gets started. I myself trained as a cultural anthropologist and, and it sort of struck me as a story that, you know, a cultural anthropologist walks into Wall Street and starts asking those sorts of questions rather than, you know, a financial mm -hmm. analysis. But with the intention of your questions, do you always have um, in mind that this could be a potential source of alpha or um, in affecting profitability? Or was it more from sort of a risk management point of view? What, what prompted you to ask these questions? I think it's 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 kind of an all of the above that it's it is a risk mitigator. It is, in my view, ultimately an alpha generator. But there was a you know a, a larger issue in my mind, which is I think in order for companies to have a license to operate, they should also be thoughtful about stakeholders broadly, and they should be thoughtful about uh, impact on environment, impact on community. Uh, impact on suppliers, and that there should be a holistic approach to operating a business. And my first realization, I would say, in, in the late 80s was simply the management teams that had been thoughtful about these issues were really strong management teams. And that what I had found was, you know, the elusive, how do I determine whether or not this is a good management team? because one of the factors you saw traditionally in Wall Street in the 1980s was, well, you tell whether they're a good management team based on whether or not their stock is going up and they're generating good earnings. And I'm like, well, no, that's all connected to something else. And what I was looking for was, how do I identify that this is a good management team? 
And this really was a way of identifying that first and foremost. And so once you've identified a good management team, now it's, uh, do I think the, you know, the market they're addressing and the, and, and the way they're approaching the market makes sense from a financial standpoint? And therefore, do I think this is a good investment? So, uh, you, know, you know, I remember saying that very early on. This is, this is the holy grail of how to identify good management teams. In that perspective, how important is it to talk to the management itself as well? And and I just asked that out of sort of the interest where if you go to the other extreme, there are some managers that say, I don't want to talk to management because they're good salespeople and I just get distracted by the story. Yeah, I mean, it's helpful to talk to the management because you might, they, they may give you an indication of a lot of the things they're working on. It's particularly helpful if it's a newer management team to, to, to get a sense of, what they what they've identified as areas of improvement things that they're trying to focus on but you know there is an element of of course these people are incredibly good salespeople, and 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 they've been successful in selling themselves to get into the positions of power they have and and now they're 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 selling the story and so if you were to have gone and simply listened to the enron management team you would have been thinking this is a really impressive you know management team with an incredible you know business model and when you obviously as you know pull back and look at it they had terrible governance you know the actual design of the of the entire model was actually flawed and and it was obviously done only through fraud that they were able to make it look like everything was okay but so interesting and and i'm i'm not gonna i was not involved but i will tell you that uh, before i joined trillium there was a period in which enron was considered sort of you know a uh, future looking energy provider and it was in the portfolios of trillium and it went out of the portfolios in trillium long before the crisis because they identified the increasing bad governance as a risk factor and sold out of the entirety of their Enron stock before the actual scandal hit. Yeah. In uh, at the moment you you are quite active in engagement with, with uh, companies and we talked a little bit in the past about shareholder resolutions and, and the filings that you um, have been involved in. Why is it important to not just you know vote with your feet and and, and sort of divest, but to engage directly into uh, with the shareholder resolutions? If your objective is to merely invest in the market and, and that's part of your, your um, you know, effort for providing financial returns, then you know, the, the step of activism isn't something that you may be pursuing. But for us, our objective is to create positive social and environmental change. And in order to really have impact and have positive impact in changing behavior, we need to be in dialogue with companies. And if that dialogue starts to not move in the direction we're, we're hoping, we need to be willing to use the shareholder proposal as a, as a tool to the end of getting action, uh, you know, positive changes made by uh, the management of corporate corporations. Yeah. Can you give some examples of recent actions that you've been involved in? Sure. Um, we, we had been in dialogue with Bank of America 
um, and, and that was um, around its exposure to traditional energy, uh, particularly concerned as we saw the opening up of the Arctic for drilling, that we were not going to see uh, the big banks funding that activity. And, uh, and we, we ended up with um, Bank of America announcing that they would not uh, finance oil or gas exploration or production activities in the Arctic. Um, and that was a, you know, a big win as we were trying to get them, the, the major players to um, support making sure they weren't going to put any uh, financial risk in, in the development of the Arctic. And, and of course, one of the things that we'll see now is what happens with the new administration when they start to pull back the ability for the drilling in the Arctic. And indeed, it would have been a bad loan had they made any. So yeah. it's, it was positive for the bank, positive for the planet, um, you know, and, and, uh, and positive, obviously, for investors that they took the stand they did. Yeah. In a recent conversation with some of the asset owners in this region, we, we asked them around measurement. How do you measure your success? And one comment was made in relation to the uh, 2050 carbon neutral targets that some of the funds have adopted that, well, the only measure of success is if we reach carbon neutrality by 2050. And anything we do beforehand doesn't really matter unless we reach it. Do you think that's a fair measure of success or do you think that, that you should measure along the way as well? Well, the, we're going to measure along the way. We're expecting companies to report on and make progress. Um, so I would say, no, it's not, uh, an, a, you know, you either make that end goal or you failed. It's we want to see steady progress toward that end goal. And there's um, a lot of other issues, right, that matter to us. So I, I, I uh I certainly carbon neutrality is an important objective. And of course, the, the uh, future of whether or not humans will be able to inhabit this planet is, is you know, um, hanging on whether or not we get this right. But there are an awful lot of other factors that we obviously look for companies to be moving, making progress on. Yeah. But how do you measure your own performance in terms of the, the activism part of it? I mean, I, I presume that when a, a resolution fails, you don't necessarily just discount that effort. Um, how, how do you keep track of it? Yeah, I mean, it, it, when a uh, if we've gone to a company to through discussion and not gotten anywhere, then go to a shareholder proposal, and then uh, the shareholder proposal is voted down um, in a decisive way. And I say decisive, meaning it really was clear that we didn't get enough support. Um, from from uh, the shareholders, um, disappointing. We may be making a decision to step out of the position, but oftentimes we've got enough support to build on that and go back the next year and end up getting a much greater vote. And so, um, I, I've seen more successes of, you know, we usually will give it several years, and we oftentimes will build on the momentum. And so, um, it's not unusual for. The first time vote didn't go that well and it was in the 20s, but then the next time it's in the 30s. And, and if we have to bring it up a third year, it's in the 40s. And by the time you're in the 40s, most members of the board and senior management are starting to realize this really matters to a lot of shareholders and, and they are the owners. And therefore, we should really be looking at what it is they've asked for and why it is this is increasingly getting a higher vote 
from our shareholders. Um, so, you know, we're, we're not used to giving up uh, very easily and we're not used to losing. <laughs> so um, we're, we're, uh, you know, I look at that, you know, the, the, um, you know, when you look at a full year number of 350 engagements and you look at 48 of them going to shareholder proposal, that means 302 of them were resolved successfully without filing a shareholder resolution. 48 of them went to a shareholder resolution and half of those were withdrawn successfully before going to a vote because the company adopted what we were asking. So now you're looking at, you know, basically it's a, it's, you know, 24 where you're asking the question of, are we making progress or do we want to simply back away? And is this one where we want to, um, you know, we're going to accept defeat and we're going to be selling out of the position and moving on. An example of that is Facebook, right? We're like, all right, we keep hitting them over the head on monitoring content for, you know, truthfulness and the fact that they had terrible governance and that the CEO should not be the chairman of the board. And, you know, we brought it up. We got a vote from shareholders. 63% of the non Mark Zuckerberg shares voted in favor of separation of chair and CEO. Well, that, that's, that said it all. And that board decided they didn't care. Right. So, you know, it's like, all right, you don't care. We're, we're gone. So you sold out? Gone. Yeah, we're gone. And, and, and that was a, that was a three-year battle. And, you know, you just get to the point where it's like, all right. And now I will say, interestingly, right. Some of what we were advocating for now they're actually implementing, but, you know, which is good, particularly um, false political um, advertisements and ads and news stories that were being, you know, where, where Facebook was being used as the tool for delivering this, you know, bad, well, you know, basically propaganda and, and uh, they cracked down and it, 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 it certainly is, it was welcome, but uh, you know, Mark uh, Zuckerberg needs to recognize that you're not doing the majority of your shareholders a, a, a favor by believing that you're the best person to manage yourself. Yeah. So in, in that sense, um, is a shareholder resolution the last resort or is that basically the divestment itself? Um, I would say divestment itself is the last resort, right? That, that's a, we've given up and we're moving, you know, moving to invest elsewhere. It's, it's true that we're using the stick of a shareholder resolution is, is not taken lightly and it's designed to try to make sure that we're dramatically increasing awareness yeah. among all the stakeholders. So in that case of Facebook, where um, ultimately you divested because they weren't listening, is then the barrier to, to entry that stock again set higher? Is there sort of a way that you want to see more progress beyond what you might have expected when you were still in the stock? Or, or do you have certain levels where you say, okay, they've done what we asked, we're back in? Well, we, we are continuing to watch and, 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 you know, this is, um, companies are constantly changing. And so if, if we saw, um, enough of a shift at Facebook, we might go back in. Yeah. I mean, that, that absolutely. I mean, there's no, I, I, I always remind people, companies like people are, are, are never perfectly good or perfectly bad. They're shades of gray and we've got to work within the, 
construct of the existing uh, you know markets we're in and the companies we're able to invest in with trying to get them to improve and and the and the uh, you know there are certainly some companies that have enough problems that we're not going to touch them um, and 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 uh, but we're, we're constantly pushing on companies um, to improve no matter how well they score on our environmental social governance scores yeah are the issues that you saw at facebook illustrated for the broader sector of social media companies where we've probably not realized what an effect they could have on the democratic processes i mean when it started out we, we posted photos of cats and we didn't quite realize that it would end up influencing the u.s elections potentially mm-hmm. do you have concerns about the sort of the broader um, industry around it yeah i mean there is um when you look at the difference between the you know the social media presenting material through internet versus broadcast media there's very striking differences in the regulatory environment and um and so we 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 are going to need to come up with a resolution of that difference because there shouldn't be that dramatic a difference in somebody who's claiming to present news over the internet uh, i'll use breitbart as an example like breitbart should be held to standards there should be some truth in what they report there's none they don't care and they haven't had to worry about it right um you know um same could be said though for gossip magazines they, they don't have to you know absolutely and there's libel law though that actually they're not shielded from so should um the online sources of information be shielded from libel laws uh, you know that i mean i know i'm like now arguing aside that obviously we saw donald trump argue for which is you shouldn't be def- protecting them from libel and i'm like well maybe not maybe we shouldn't protect them from libel maybe we have to have somewhere maybe it needs to be something in between i don't really know i just you know i have to say i am amazed that there is no rule saying that you can call yourself news that you actually need to present some news yeah Yeah, we've got we've got a you know a number of examples that broadcast in the US where I'm like if you were ever to watch um One America you're just sort of stunned because there's no effort whatsoever to present the truth it's a non-stop propaganda machine and you just sort of like sit and listen and think people can't really believe this but of course there are people who are watching it and believing it and they'll think it's news right because it says it's news and uh you know that's the uh, Rupert Murdoch had a great line that I will never forget in a media interview he was asked to list his favorite sources for news and he listed them and it did not include Fox News <laughs> and the interviewer said Mr Murdoch I noticed you didn't mention Fox News and he said Fox News is an entertainment channel and that's true yeah It was never designed to present news, but it was designed to present a point of view as news for the purposes of generating propaganda in support of a particular political cause. Yeah, because it's not it's not necessarily clear to but it's not clear to the people who are watching it because they'll sit there and say, "Oh no, I'm watching the news." And I'm like, "Actually, it's not news." 
It's an and, and most of the programming is not news. Now, it doesn't mean, by the way, that there aren't some news programming within their network and there isn't some legitimate journalists within their network. But, you know, like you put on, you know, Sean Hannity or you put on, you know, you just Tucker Carlson and you're just like, what is this? <laughs> the, the, the reality doesn't matter. The truth has no bearing whatsoever. And so there was just a, uh, somebody just published, I think it was New York Times, a, a count of how many times Sean Hannity said the election was fraudulent or stolen between the day after the election and the attacks uh, on the Capitol. And it was like, you know, he was saying it multiple times per show from the day after the election to, until the attacks on the Capitol. And you're like, yeah, that helps with people reinforcing people's belief system, you know? I, oh no, I saw it on Fox News. And I'm like, well, no, you actually saw it on Sean Hannity. And yes, it's broadcast on Fox News, but it's not news. And it's, anyway, you, you know, it's just, yeah. a, so should, should we have more, more aggressive rules about what, I, I don't, you know, I don't know. And I, by the way, I'm not, I'm not suggesting I know the answer. I'm just saying that I, I do step back and say, well, shouldn't someone be able to be sued for constantly reporting something that they know is false? And, and you know, now, and you, I think you know this, the, the, the two of the manufacturers of voting equipment are now suing Fox News commentators yes. specifically for this reason of saying you constantly kept saying that our machines had been rigged yes. to report, you know, alternative that's that's counts. an interesting development because I don't think they saw that necessarily coming. Yeah, and so now they're right, and so now they're like, you know, yeah, you caused them financial harm, and 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 you you know you made the stuff up because you know it's like, and you've kept repeating it even after you were told it was wrong. And it's on video, right? And it's on video. So, is there liability? Maybe, and maybe maybe we'll see finally at least liability on an individual basis. But doesn't it? It would seem it would, you know, it would sort of seem reasonable that it would also go to the broadcaster, the yeah. network that ran the channel, you know, the story. Yeah. Um, if if they knew it was not true and they were continually rebroadcasting, yeah, I would think there would be liability for Fox News. And so when we when we take this as sort of a, a, a philosophical level. Do you look for these instances where basically the regulator doesn't have a framework for dealing with certain situations where you step in and say, hold on, is, is this right what a company is doing here? Is, is that sort of conscious thought where you know there's an absence of the regulator? That is part of it. I mean, because we, we oftentimes will sit, I mean, we'll discuss, we go through discussing in detail what our, what our thoughts are and what we think should happen. And we'll often come to the conclusion, oh, this would be a perfect place where if regulatory stepped in, it would be resolved quickly and effectively, but regulatory in the environment we're in is not going to step in. And therefore, what pressures can we bring to bear to get the change in this direction? And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's like you look now, we we know there's an incredible issue around pay equality, both based on gender and racial, uh, you know, yes. racial inequalities. So 
with racial and gender inequalities, how do you approach getting companies to address it and to correct? Well, one of the things we need is data. The data is not made available by most companies. So if we could get regulatory relief there by getting the SEC to agree, this data is material and therefore the EEO1 data that's produced by every company operating in the United States with over 100 employees is a disclosable item. And therefore public companies will need to release their EEO1. Suddenly there'd be this wealth of data that we could sort of monitor and see whether or not companies are improving or, or declining in terms of addressing these issues. Do you know why they're not releasing this information? Um, it doesn't look favorable, right? <laughs> But that's not the regulator's concern, right? Well, the regulators should be concerned because it's material. So, you know, it, it's been a debate about is it material and, and therefore does it require disclosure? And we've obviously been on the side arguing it is material and it needs to be disclosed. And, uh, and so far, Chamber of Commerce, Business Roundtable, you know, the other, the other uh, players who want to protect the insulation they have from releasing material information have basically won the day and, and convinced the SEC not to require that it be disclosed. Um, we've been asking now for over a decade through the process of corporate engagement and then shareholder resolution for EEO1 data to be released. Companies are slowly getting to the point where they're realizing, yeah, it's kind of moving in that direction and we should be ahead of this. Yeah. We should acknowledge that we have some issues. We should acknowledge that we understand them and we should talk about our plan of action to close the gap. That's what we should do. That's the responsible management decision, right? And so you have Brian Moynihan from Bank of America out publicly doing tons of speeches, mea culpa, you know, the financial services industry in particular has been terrible and we are committed to correcting this and we are going to be, I don't know, actually, I think they've already begun disclosing their EEO one. And, and so, uh, you know, one of the, you know, progress of a big financial institution releasing the EEO one data, but, um, you know, still 95% holding back, you know, uh, set too sensitive. The best line I have to tell you, which I always love is when they tell you that it's too expensive to gather that information. And you are like, you know, chuckling, thinking we already have it. Yeah, it's a requirement. I didn't ask you to spend a penny to gather anything you don't already have. I'm just asking you to disclose what you've already gathered and presented to the federal government. And, uh, you know, not a, not a high bar, quite frankly, for transparency. But, you know, I think, I think we'll get there. I think that we'll see a regulatory win. And that's an example where, you know, while we've been asking and doing it at a company level, we're still pressing at a policy level for change from the regulators. So you've been in this game a long time, and we've just talked about the number of issues, um, climate change, um, uh, inequality. Have you seen sort of these thematics change over the years? I, I presume that 30 years ago when you started quite asking questions at Lehman Brothers that there wasn't much talk around climate change and carbon neutrality. No. Yeah, if you were to go back, I think there was um, uh, 
fairly, you know, fair majority of people would have been um, of the mindset that considering any of these issues was going to be ne ne necessarily detrimental to the performance of a company and to the performance of its shares. And, and, and that's shifted dramatically, right? We now have people who are recognizing that building a business to be sustainably uh, run and, 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 and uh, treating its employees fairly is not a, is not, is not a negative for the potential for the company in terms of earnings potential. It's, it's, it's actually highly correlated that the stronger those, uh, you know, programs are, the stronger the management team, the stronger the, 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 uh, you know, efforts to make sure that they're treating employees well and retaining talent, the stronger the performance. So I think there's a, a, a shift that's occurred that's been fairly dramatic, particularly in the last couple of years. And, you know, some, in, in, in some strange way, that was partially because of Trump. Yeah. You know, it was kind of like the anti, like, you know, he was anti everything. And suddenly people start to wake up and say, well, I, no, that doesn't make sense. And, you know, it was, it was like a reaction to that I think got us to the point we're at, where people are now saying, maybe it is a good idea that people have access to healthcare, <laughs> you know, you know, in the middle of a global pandemic, maybe, you know, maybe people should earn a living wage. You know, you're getting a lot of rethinking of pe from people where you were like, wow, this is like, it took us a long time to get here. Don't get me wrong. We were, we were, we were feeling a little lost for a while there, but I do think we're, we're in a good place uh, now in terms of the way people are thinking. Yeah. So to a strange degree, uh, Trump could have been potentially a catalyst for sustainable investing to come more to the forefront. Yeah, I, I think strangely, that is probably exactly uh, what happened. And in particular, um, we have to remember that he made every attempt to try to curtail <laughs> everything we do. And, and his last effort with the Department of Labor letter suggesting that it was a violation of fiduciary duty to look at environmental, social and governance issues when looking at investment options for retirement plans, that that was just last year, and and now um, you know I was I was we were talking about what we're expecting from the Biden administration, and I said I I don't think they should remove the rule. I think they should just edit it, right? Yeah, it addresses all the key issues. ESG. You should say, given that ESG investing has demonstrated reduced risk and increased alpha. You are violating your fiduciary duty if you are not incorporating environmental, social, and governance issues, period, and yeah. leave it there. Yeah. <laughs> Just simply edit the rule, but don't, you know, because it, it literally was left with, um, you know, we had a, a major 401k plan of, of a, one of the largest um, employers in the U.S., over 50,000 employees, looking at an ESG option of ours for their 401k plan. And they literally came back and it was the you know, HR benefits people. And they said, oh, our general counsel, after seeing this new rule, has told us to stop moving forward with adding an ESG option. And it's like, so there was a reaction. Now you need to see 
what if what if we could get it clarified this is actually beneficial yeah could we actually get some activity the other way of people starting to realize you know could you get legal counsel running into the benefits group saying well, we better have some esg options in our 401k plan or we may be in violation of fiduciary duty yes yeah which is the truth if you don't have esg options you're in violation of your fiduciary duty. I wanted to finish up with uh, an issue that has come more to the front. Um, and we discussed mm -hmm. this a little bit around the, the sustainable development goals. Mm -hmm. And you, you sort of earlier on develop your own set of uh, goals in that sense. Mm -hmm. But do you think that these have the potential to um, accelerate this, this area of sustainable investing, or do you think that they're too high level to sort of function within the investment framework? They can be helpful. There are a number of sustainable development goals that I think are um, thematic and can play well in how you position and how you invest. There are some that are bigger picture and weren't designed, quite frankly, to affect how you invest. And, and so, because we have to remember these were designed for government right? Yeah. These were goals for the governments around the world. And so uh, when somebody talks about, oh, I built a investment product to address the SDGs, I confess I'm skeptical that you were able to address all the sustainable development goals with a product. And I'm also, um, you know, concerned that it, it, it that it's just marketing. So I, I'm, but I do think there are, um, you know, the, the, the goals were set as very aspirational. As you, I think, know, it was not to alleviate hunger, it was to eliminate hunger. It was not to alleviate poverty, it was to eliminate poverty. And it goes on, you know, like that, it's to eliminate inequality um, by gender, by race, right? And so all wonderful goals. And, and of course, all as we, we, you know, we're all hopeful we're just seeing some steady progress on them all um i i um yeah and i and i just think that um it's it's tough on a, a number of them to think about you know how do you tie you know working in partnership uh to an investable you know stock idea yeah I, i'm not sure yeah well i think your um reluctance uh, in, in that sense or your your skepticism is shared by, by some people, because we were recently introduced here at I3 to the term rainbow washing. And oh, I think, yes. you know, it refers to that pretty slide with all the nice colors of all the yeah. SDGs in, in, you know, a rainbow color. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Do you see a lot of that? Well, see, yeah, worse than trying to talk about developing products to serve the SDGs is taking a product that has never been you know, there was no consideration for the SDGs and suddenly you just simply slap the label on and then design marketing materials around it. And uh, one of the things I've seen, and I don't know how bad it is down in Australia, but I will tell you here in the United States, one of the things we're seeing is in order to even talk about the sustainable development goals in literature, you're supposed to have committed by being a signatory to the UN Global Compact to commit your business toward moving in the direction of solving this, you know, moving toward the sustainable development goals and solving some of these pressing global problems. What we're seeing is people aren't even bothering. They don't even bother to sign the global compact. They don't even bother to, 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 uh, 
make any pretenses of really caring. They're just simply taking, downloading all of the, the material from the SDGs and, and saying, oh, I own Unilever. They're working on hunger. There, I'm going to go and put that one there. And then, you know, I, I, I have, you know, uh, this auto company. That's going to be for, you know, economic equality. I'm like, how? I don't know. But, and, and you're seeing that all over the place. And yeah, it's been, it's been bad. I'm like, yeah. I, um, you know, we've seen, obviously, over the years, greenwashing. And, and, and we've seen, uh, yeah, we've seen, and, and I've not heard the term rainbow washing, but that's good. Because, of <laughs> course, it looks like, you know, there's 17 colors of the sustainable development goals. And we've got so many people just simply grabbing whatever they can on the materials on the SDGs and putting it in marketing materials. Yeah, yeah, you, you have that, you have that clear slide with all the seventeen goals and all the different colors of it. So it's it's sort of an mm-hmm. apt term. Um, we we did recently a, a roundtable where we discussed this, and there was brought up the idea of intentionality, where you can't just have an investment strategy and then you match it to something retrospectively. You have to have an intention to change something. Is, is that sort of where it comes back to, okay, well, you, you really only can do that through um, active engagement, do you think? If your objective is to have positive impact on the world, you're not generally going to accomplish that by simply investing in a portfolio of better companies because you're buying in the secondary markets, you're not really influencing capital flows. If you really truly are trying to have positive impact in the world, you're going to be an active owner. You're going to end up, and, and I'm not saying you couldn't in the future when quality of data is really good, do an index fund using this data. What I'm saying is you have to be an active owner. You have to behave like you care about what the companies are doing and how they're behaving. And you have to be, you know, talk, both dialogue with them and also voting your proxies and also engaging with, you know, in, in the creation of shareholder proposals when you see changes not happening that should be happening. And, and, and you know, uh, uh, if we could get all of the owners of corporates to behave as good global citizens, right? We, could, yeah. we, we really could bring incredible pressure. Um, just one issue alone that I want to point to, which is one that I just sort of um, find amazing is we have an excessive compensation problem for the C-suite, particularly the CEOs in the United States in particular. Um, and, and it's gotten worse and worse and worse over uh, time. And, and why is it getting worse? Well, it's because the alignment isn't right. We don't have the owners actually speaking up about this. And it's really an amazing, um, I, had, I, I had the opportunity to present to a group of, the, there's a, an organization of national corporate directors. And I had an audience of 400 corporate directors. And so I asked them the question, how many of you are on the boards of companies where your CEO is in the bottom half of the industry? And they all just laugh. <laughs> yeah. None of them. Can you believe that? None of them have CEOs that are in the bottom half of their industry. Well, statistically, half of them did, right? Yeah. And, and then I asked, could by show of hands, could you tell me how many think your CEO is in the top quartile? And everybody raised their hands. 
And I'm like, that's correct. Every one of you believe your CEOs are in the top quartile. And then you play a game every year of trying to get your CEO into the top quartile of compensation for the industry. And that creates this incredibly terrible spiral up that we've seen. And when we talk about income inequality, you're it. You caused it. I'm sure it went down well. Oh, yeah, no, they were, they hated me, but that's okay. <laughs> they were, they were not pleased. They were not pleased to hear me talking like that. But I was like, yeah, but that's it, right? How do, yeah. how do you, how do you justify that? And it's like, and how it is that every, and, and it is true, like you cannot find a corporate director who's going to tell you their CEO is not in the top quartile. Yeah, because they're probably equated to, well, he must be not very good then if he's in the bottom Right. Quarter. Yeah. But, you know, like, I'm sorry, it's a statistics game. Half of them are in the bottom half and half of them are in the top half. And only a quarter of them are in the top quarter. And that's just the way the math works. Yes. And it's like, so obviously you can't all be in the top quartile. Yeah, well, that's, that's uh, again, a cultural issue as well, uh, right, um, right. apart from a competition issue. Well, Matt, thank you very much. This was a very interesting conversation and it was great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. All right, take care. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much. Thank mm-hmm. you.